This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm with Dean Lahikainen, Carolyn and Peter Lynch, curator of the American Decorative Art for the Peabody Essex Museum. How are you, Dean? I'm very well. Thank you so much. I just saw this wonderful exhibition here, Carl Fabergé. And what is the title to that? this exhibition? Uh, it's called Fabergé Revealed from the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Uh-huh. Can we talk a little bit, first of all, where the collection originated? The collection came from the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, and they own the largest Fabergé collection in the United States. And the bulk of that collection came from Lillian Thomas Pratt, who was one of the early pioneer collectors of Fabergé during the 1920s and 1930s. And um, she was able to collect um, at a time when many of these Fabergé objects were coming out of uh, Russia, uh, being sold off by the Russian government after having been confiscated from the Romanov family at the time of the Russian Revolution. And the great aspect of the collection is she was able to acquire five of the imperial royal Easter eggs, mm. which are certainly the most famous products uh, from the House of Fabergé and certainly right. have a lot to do with the allure uh, of the Fabergé name today. How many imperial eggs were there made altogether? Altogether, 50 were made, mm -hmm. um, of which 42 uh, are known today. Uh, eight disappeared uh, at the time of the R Russian Revolution. Is there speculation that they may resurface someday? Uh, I, I have no idea. Um, yeah. uh, having been in the antique world for a long time, I never say never. Yeah. And it's continually amazing what does turn up. But mm -hmm. um, I think these have been so highly prized for so long, it would be quite remarkable, I suppose, to have one turn up. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, why would someone tuck that away and exactly. forget about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, one thing I didn't realize is that I just assumed that Carl Fabergé was a hands-on person, that he did some of the work. Now, I know he was a goldsmith, but he was the one that just saw, oversaw the whole production and of design and everything. Correct. Um, he was trained as a jeweler by his father. Uh, they were uh, the family. They were French Huguenots and fled the France to, yeah. to uh, St. Petersburg, so it is a French name. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a very good education. He was able to go and train with some of the best uh, jewelers and goldsmiths in Europe before coming back to take over his family business. So certainly up in, I don't know, into the 1880s, he probably was making jewelry himself. Mm -hmm. And certainly it was the fact that he... Uh, was trained, understood excellence, understood quality. But when he became noticed by the royal family, uh, and uh, Empress Maria bought a pair of cufflinks he had made at a, at a pan-Russian exhibition in 1882. Um, that was his start of the link with the family. Um, and by 1885, he had been appointed uh, the official supplier to the court which allowed him to use the uh, royal insignia, which is the double-headed eagle, mm -hmm. uh, incorporate that into his logo. So it suddenly mm -hmm. gave anything 
he produced or his firm produced great cachet. Mm -hmm. And from there, it was just, um, you know, a meteoric rise and Mm -hmm. how quickly he was able to expand it. And certainly by that point, he is no longer sitting at the bench. He's becoming this uh, entrepreneur, businessman, and figuring out ways how to, uh, well, expand the production but also maintain the quality of what they are producing. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, and the quality, second to none. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I heard you say today, it seems like he may have employed about 1,500 people, something it, like it's that. It's estimated um, at his height he mm-hmm. had uh, 1,500 people in his employ. In he, several locations. He had two, his two main centers of operation were St. Petersburg, and that was the original store. Mm -hmm. Um, And there he had uh, 300 craftsmen in addition to managers, retailer agents and so forth working. Mm -hmm. And then he had a branch in Moscow, but also uh, workshops in Moscow. And there were 200 artist craftsmen working there in addition Mm -hmm. to you know, other other people involved in it. But he also had retail branches in Odessa and Kiev and London. So when you With had, no craftsmen at all, just retail? No, they were just retail mm-hmm. in, in those particular centers. And um, being a, a brilliant a business manager and having business sense, um, he had um, selling trips to, like, you know, Asia and other places where uh, his agents would go with marketing these goods. So it really was a multinational sale uh, uh, effort Mm -hmm. at his peak. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking of is how did he find such talented workers? I think he probably at some point was um, wealthy enough that he could pay them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of them came from either Finland or Germany. And I'm sure he had agents who went, and obviously you could review someone's work. People had reputations and so forth. But this was still the guild system in operation in Europe, and that was where someone came, um, boys as young as 11, and you would be put in one of these workshops. You would sit next to... Um, a master, and you would observe, and then you they would give you some jobs to do, and you basically learned on the spot and worked your way up. And if you you know stayed with it, uh, one of his work masters uh, worked for him for fifty six years, um, <laughs> really? and 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 they had a lot to do um, with uh, certainly the success of it. But it was very much a you know collaborative venture that probably isn't. Uh, any object there, with except maybe the exception of some of the cloisonne pieces, that were made by a single person. So it would be multiple masters, be it stone cutters, goldsmiths, enamelers, polishers, gem cutters, mm-hmm. all had mastered their craft, and they would all work on one of these mm-hmm. objects, um, and particularly the royal eggs, which uh, you know employ so many different materials and, and so forth. Now, I think of someone like Louis Comfort Tiffany, and he had one focus at first was windows. Did Fabergé have a focus initially? Like well, I think they were a jewelry business, so jewelry started mm-hmm. with that. And then yeah. most jewelry shops have these luxury items, boxes, and mm-hmm. other things. His largest uh, single item uh, were cigarette cases, mm. and he had a whole 
workshop that did nothing but produce cigarette wow. cases. And the other number I heard you throw out is about 150,000 objects were made by these people by this in 35 firm years. In roughly 30, 35 years that the Fabergé, House of Fabergé was in operation. And to have that kind of quality... Right. It's just and, amazing. And all said to be one of a kind. Right. Yeah. That's... So that, I mean, I don't know if they, you know, can prove that or not, but I think that that was one of the things they prided themselves on was this uniqueness of it and the right. fact that you hear you're spending a great deal of money for one of these small yeah. uh, objects. You you really wanted to know that it was a work of art. This was not a mass-produced right. item necessarily. Something that wasn't cast in right. a mold with... Correct. Many other. Correct. Oh, wow, that is that is amazing. I, I had never heard that before. That each object is one of a kind. Now, how about I have seen sets of spoons before. Now, that that set of spoons would be one of a kind. Well, most the decoration on it probably would not be yeah. d- duplicated. So wow. the craftsman was, you know, obviously mm-hmm. working with a vocabulary of ornaments and techniques, mm-hmm. but you know, being very very creative about how they were doing it. I mean. What's astounding is the fact that they took so much pride in what they were doing mm. and the fact that there's so many small things in this exhibition. And, you know, initially I thought, oh, my goodness, this stuff is so small. How do you uh-huh. <laughs> make this into an impressive show? But it it does require this very close scrutiny. And when you actually take one piece, you realize what a brilliant design it is. Take it. I mean, mm-hmm. the ones that I find – Fascinating are all these cane handles. Right. There's a case of them. Parasol but every thing. one has been superbly designed and then how they've combined all of these different materials, being the enameling or gold or gems or whatever, into it. And mm-hmm. every one, you know, perfect. And mm-hmm. they had an enormous resource library available, the designers in Fabergé. He had a library and he also had castings of wax ancient jewelry and other things because all of the styles they worked in were revival styles of Mm -hmm. things from the 18th century or, you know, neoclassicism. And they could go and spend time as they were coming up with a new design every year. And, of course, he prided himself on the fact that every year was a new line created. And there's Mm -hmm. a line that at the end of the season, whatever wasn't sold was gathered up and melted down that, that um, really? It was a marketing strategy. Now, whether oh. he actually did that, I don't know. It may have been just for advertising purposes. But mm-hmm. it did keep the aristocracy coming back um, and, you know, buying one of these uh, carved animals each year. And he introduces a rooster or a, a, or a French bulldog or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wanted to have one of them. And they were all different different eyes and, and yeah. so forth. So Yeah. Um, now, miniatures, a lot of people don't really think about this, but miniatures are very, very difficult to make compared to, well, for instance, let's say a salesman sample piece is very difficult to make with mm-hmm. little dovetailing and all sure. that. Yeah. So miniature work is much more oh, difficult much than a, a larger size yeah. piece. And these people were masters at it. Masters. And, you know, working with this these Russian hard stones, mm-hmm. and Russia probably has more unusual uh, stones, um, which, you know, were mined and, and selected for all of these, um, when you, when you realize how hard they are and yeah. then, and then how they have been able to carve feathers or feet or ears, um, in these, mm-hmm. I mean, totally whimsical, mm-hmm. um, creations, um, is really quite remarkable. Now, did they have separate 
designers? I know that. I think that there were probably Mm -hmm. master designers, and every work had a watercolor done to scale before it went into production. Wow. Are those watercolors? Um, A lot of them are around in various Mm -hmm. collections. Um, Mm -hmm. So um, a few of the workbooks are known, and they did keep very, very detailed records. Um, I've seen some in books for some of the animal carvings and floral ones and so forth. Mm -hmm. Was the progression still on its way upward when the Russian Revolution broke out, when World War I basically broke out? I would think things were going along because certainly the aristocracy was intact and the Mm -hmm. czar, I mean, was probably the most powerful person in the world. Certainly his empire was the largest, I mean, extending from the Pacific to the Baltic Sea, and, and they had total control over that. I think during World War One, for example, royal eggs were they did not order royal eggs, so the Tsar did not hmm. order, order it for I think it was two years or so forth. So that would imply a obviously a slowdown, um, and many of the materials were not available. Hmm. Um, so we have one case um, where there's a copper dish that Fabergé made, and then a very plain nephrite. Dish, and I think nephrite, which is that beautiful green stone, almost like was jade, more, more uh, was almost like a jade, but mm-hmm. it was more plentiful. Fabergé kept producing, even though he didn't get the precious metals. Mm. Um, he just, you know, used less expensive things to keep it going, and so that's why he, you know, in good times and bad, he was able to strategize and figure out a way to, to keep going yeah. for that. But I would think probably by that point, things were really falling apart, uh, particularly for mm. for the aristocracy. Do you know exactly what happened to the czar's possessions uh, during um, the revolution? They were all confiscated. The, all of the possessions of of the royal family were confiscated by the Bolshevik government. Mm-hmm. And in the instance of the royal eggs, um, they were all confiscated and taken to the uh, treasury in Moscow. Um, presumably for safekeeping. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was in 1925 um, that they, despite the protests of the curators of the of the uh, museum in Moscow, uh, they began selling them off to raise money for the new government. Um, and that's why ones have ended up in the United States. So um, this would have been when uh, Lillian uh, Thomas Pratt um, was able to start buying them. Uh, Armin Hammer um, became one of the main conduits. He was a, a, a dealer. Um, I think he may have collected some, but he developed an association with the branch of the uh, communist government um, mm-hmm. that was selling these off, and then he obviously developed relationships with collectors. Um, and a wonderful story with Lillian Pratt, one would assume, like Marjorie Merriweather Post, who was another big collector of Fabergé, who had you know, enormous resources. Uh, Lillian was certainly well-to-do, but one of her royal eggs she bought on time, so she was mm. paying the dealer a few hundred dollars a month wow, <laughs> up until yeah. she paid off, uh, uh, paid off uh, the, the egg. Um, a sound investment because I, <laughs> I think sure. they're worth up to 25 or 30 million. Sure, well, I'm like sure that. possibly yeah. today if one came up, yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing a few years ago that one came up, but I don't remember exactly how long ago. I, they don't come up too often. They don't. And in mm-hmm. the last, of course, great 
exchange was the Malcolm Forbes collection. Mm. He mm-hmm. had the largest collection of these royal eggs. Um, and I don't remember the exact number. It might have been as many as eight. And when he died, um, his son decided to sell them. And they were going to go to auction. And then they were withdrawn. And a Russian uh, tycoon, oil tycoon, bought the collection. And so it went back to Russia. And well, I, I have to say, usually so. I, I like things going to auction. But still, I think that was actually a good ending. Oh, I think it's yeah. great to have it back there. And yeah. Yeah, that's So the two enough. largest collection of Fabergé eggs are now in the, in the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. Now, did Lillian foresee the future of her collection and donated actually to the museum? She did. She donated mm-hmm. to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, which obviously was an enormous gift. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And how many pieces in that collection? That I don't know. Yeah, hand. totally. Uh, we have 231 pieces in the exhibit. Uh, not everyone is from that collection because other people have donated uh, pieces to the Virginia Museum because of oh, that I see. collection. Uh-huh, so, that totally makes so it's sense. not totally her collection, uh-huh. but, but the majority of them are from her collection. Yeah. Can you um, tell the listening audience how long this exhibition, you know, it's, it's opening? It opens on um, June 22nd to the public, and it's on view until September 29th. Okay. Can you tell a little bit about the history of this museum? The Peabody Essex? Well, the Peabody Essex is one of the oldest museums in the United States. Um, it was founded in 1799 uh, by Salem Sea Captains. Um, it was original, originally known as the East India Marine Society. Hmm. And they brought back on Salem was one of the major trading ports in the United States uh, at the end of the 18th century. And as the sea captains were traveling to all of these remarkable ports after the American Revolution when trading restrictions that had been imposed by Great Britain were no longer in effect, they opened up trade with ports around the world. And as they were doing this, they brought back many of the marvelous things that they were seeing from all of these cultures. And so they decided to have a museum and share them with the the people here in Salem. I think our first uh, catalog of the collection was published in 1821, which is, you know, almost a century before anyone else was doing that sort of thing. And then over the years, um, taking all of those collections, again, from around the world, various initiatives went forward um, in developing those collections. So today we have nine curatorial departments and really have large collections of works from China, Japan, India, the uh, Pacific Island cultures, and then, of course, a preeminent collection of American decorative arts and fine art, um, and a very large maritime collection. Oh, yeah. And the, I believe the oldest Native American art. Um, and I think one of the unique things about the museum is the fact that because it's so old, we have some incredibly rare, unique pieces in the collection that, you know, entered in 1820 that would you'd be hard-pressed to find one anywhere else in the world, totally unique pieces. Um, yeah. And we uh, are continuing to grow and expand. Uh, the museum doubled 
its footprint in 2003. Is that when the Chinese house was put in? And that was part of that expansion um, by the architect Moshe Safdi uh, was um, the re-erection of a Chinese house, 200-year-old Chinese house. Um, now, I actually had a friend come out from California just to, to yeah. go through that. A unique, totally unique uh, mm-hmm. experience in the United States, yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, thanks so much. Okay. And what a fabulous exhibition this is. And I hope whoever's listening gets a chance to come to Massachusetts and take a look. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.